One of the greatest errors of the modern church, I could say of the West, but I think it's definitely mostly found in America, though not exclusively, is this practice of hyper-contextualization. I say hyper-contextualization because there are aspects of contextualization which are unavoidable. When I speak in this language, let me illustrate it in a very simple way. If you're called as a missionary, growing up in America, I feel that call of God to go to Mexico, it's probably, it's probably wise of you to think of the fact that I'm going to have to preach the gospel in Spanish. That's a form of contextualization. Most of the people that you meet there will be speaking in Spanish. And if you try to minister exclusively in English, you're going to hit hindrances. Certainly, you need to be very clear about why you're doing that and what area and people you're trying to address. Far better it is for you to understand the need to to take in the language. They use a particular language. Sometimes we go to parts of the world, they, they may dress in a particular fashion. And again, there's nothing inherently sinful in the way they dress. It's just different. And if you're going to be received, if you're going to be accepted, if you're going to make inroads into that community and into that nation, you might consider, again, a form of contextualization. You, you seek to understand that I need to adopt certain things in order to make inroads for the sake of the gospel. But certain significant church leaders, even in Bible-believing circles today, have an idea of contextualization, especially in the realm of inner-city missions, that takes us far too far. They have suggested that the reason American city dwellers have rejected the gospel is because the church has failed to contextualize its message. To succeed in a city, they tell us, the church must be, and I'm quoting here, extremely culturally sensitive. That's not just understanding the dynamics of modern cities today, where you have a vast array of different nationalities and languages and all the rest of it. That's not really what they're getting at, because they proceed then to encourage we must have a, a particular focus upon the artist's. Artists, we are told, must be considered almost as a separate ethnic group whose advice must be sought in the worship of the church in order to be attractive to them. This kind of thinking leads to, as I've said, a hyper-contextualization. And in such churches, do not be surprised to find male ballet dancers, and I'm not making this up, male ballet dancers putting on a contemporary performance in the middle of the church. In other churches, of course, tastes will be maybe, we might say, a little less sophisticated. So they will, in their hyper-contextualization, they will have movie-themed worship services. And so this month, our special uh, themed service is centered around James Bond or Star Wars or some other pop culture thing. <laughs> this is hyper-contextualization. And the argument for it is that if it gets people in the door, then it is justified. If it encourages people to make a commitment to Jesus, then it is permissible. And I open with that, partly to educate you on what's going on today, but on the other hand, 
because of the passage that we're dealing with tonight, because tonight, verses 13 through 16 will be the verses of our concentration and focus this evening. Christ gives a view of inner city missions. He makes pronouncements upon certain cities of His time. And He had ministered in these areas. He had gone to these regions. He had been in their midst. And He was able to do something far more engaging than a Disney-themed church service. He performed miracles that give sight to the blind and cleansed lepers and caused the lame to walk. It was a spectacle. Yet, yet, his message was still rejected largely because it did not soften the reality of sin and what it means to be a true disciple of Christ. Here's a man that's bringing all that they could ever desire far beyond anything that is mere entertainment. This is life-changing. He is transforming homes. And yet still, he is largely rejected. So does he change his methods? Does he contextualize the message? Does he adapt in some way that will make it more palatable? No. No. So this is important for us to get. And tonight I want to deal with what I've entitled simply, Christ exposes the worst of sins. Christ exposes the worst of sins. And we're going to see here, first, that which is unknown, verses 13 and 14, that which is unseen, verse 15, and that which is unwanted in verse 16. And we'll explain that a little more as we proceed. But I want you to note with me here, verses 13 and 14, we got as far as verse 12 last Lord's Day. We come to verse 13. And we read, Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which have been done in you, they had a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. I want you to note a shift, just before we proceed, a shift in the language of our Lord Jesus Christ from verse 12 through verse 13. Verse 12 really is Christ giving helpful instruction to the 70, the disciples that He had appointed to help reach the areas and go before Him as He would conduct the latter part of His ministry before heading to Jerusalem. He is telling them, He is making them aware that when they are rejected, when the message is rejected, it will be more tolerable on that day for Sodom than for that city. Now, we'll have more to say about that in just a moment. But in verse 13, then Christ, He laments. You see the lament. I want you to try and feel the language. He's addressing these 70 disciples. He's preparing them before they are sent. And it, it seems like he, he just interjects or stops His direct speech to them and in their presence begins to cry and lament over the condition of the cities. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! This is language of lament. Here is a man of heart. Our Lord Jesus Christ feels this. And I, I, I draw that out to you because I think at times we read the Bible and it's, it's just details and information to try and feel it, try and sense it, try and understand the grief. You're told that Christ is a man of sorrows. Here you see the sorrow of his heart. And he's using language that is very, very striking. 
If there was a reason for me to say to you personally that your sin makes you worse than Hitler, that's going to get your attention, I would imagine. You're, you're worse than Hitler. I would imagine that you would rise up, you would say, what do you mean, how do you justify such statements like that? that I mean, that would, that would get people a little hot under the collar. And that's the very thing that Christ does here. Verse 12, addressing the cities where the 70 are going to go, he says to them, it's going to be worse for them than for Sodom. Then Chorazin and Bethsaida, the the same thing. He's he's comparing them to Tyre and Sidon. These are Phoenician cities that that know nothing of God and are, are known for their wickedness. So he gets the attention of the people by reflecting on how much worse they are than the known wicked cities of the world. So if we skim over this and, and miss it, if we, if we don't understand it, if we, if we just think this is language that has no significance, this, this is designed to get under your skin. If you were someone critical of Jesus Christ standing around this, this is really going to grate you. This is stroking the cat the wrong way. This is everything that is irritating. Who does this man think he is? How dare he speak in such ways? But it's coming from a heart of sorrow, a heart of grief. Note here, as we consider that which is unknown, there is a divine analysis of cities. There is a divine analysis of cities. Here in verse 13, when he says, Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida, for the mighty works have been done in Tyre and Sidon, which have been done in you, they had a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Now, Chorazin is a, is a city that was located near to Capernaum. Tyre and Sidon, as I've already said, were cities that were outside. They were Phoenician cities known for their wickedness. They had been addressed in the past by some of the prophets, such as Amos in chapter 1 of Amos and Joel 3. In fact, we're told of Tyre and Sidon in Joel 3, verse 6, some of the wickedness that they were known for. And it was particularly grievous to to the Jews, to Israelites, because Joel 3, 6 says, The children also of Judah and the children of Jerusalem have ye sold unto the Grecians. So they had made slaves of God's people. This is what Tyre and Sidon had done. They They were a merchant people, and they found a ways, and I don't know all the background and how they did this, but they, they, they made slaves of some of God's covenant people, and that, that's going to rub into the, the kind of these, any wounds that would be there in the relationship between God's people and Tyre and Sidon. And it's going to be far more inflamed by the thought that you, you, took, you took our fathers and you sold them as slaves. In fact, the pride of these cities is encapsulated. I'm just giving some verses here to set some context as to what we know about them and what Scripture reveals. In Ezekiel 28, verse 2, the prophet is told, Son of man, say unto the prince of Tyrus, Thus saith the Lord God, because thine heart is lifted up, and thou hast said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of God in the midst of the seas. Yet thou art a man and not God, though thou set thine heart as the heart of God. So here you see their pride. This is, this is a very proud people. They had been extremely commercially successful. Their location, their use of ships in the seas had made them very successful. And they, they're inflamed with pride. They, they think themselves untouchable. 
and they are wicked. And yet Christ says that should they have been exposed to what the cities during the ministry of Christ had been exposed to, they had a great while ago repented. Now, there's no way of telling that that would be the case. There's no way for us to say that that's what would have happened. This is a divine perception. This is Christ understanding what far exceeds what is in the mere comprehension or knowledge of men. But it raises something interesting, doesn't it? Christ saying that these wicked cities would have repented if they had the Messiah if they had the preaching, if they were exposed to what has been going on over the past couple of years, if if Tyre and Sidon had been exposed to that, they would have repented. Again, just to step back here, do you see the response that Christ is looking for? Do Do you see the response He's looking for in sinners? He's looking for repentance. He's looking for them to repent in sackcloth and ashes. That's a good thing. That's a recognition of who you really are. And we're far too seeking to, to, to incline to avoid these kind of truths and this kind of reality. We are sinners, men and women. We are sinners. If you don't begin there, you're lost and you will be perpetually lost. You need to begin with the understanding that you're a wretch, a sinner before God. There's nothing good in you. And so, here he is, he's saying, so if my ministry had been done in Tyre and Sidon, if my disciples' ministry had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have responded in the way that they ought. They would have fallen down and cried out for mercy. That's the response he's looking for. That's just a real, really a side note. But this text sometimes has been used to argue for the power of the human will. You know, and saying Christ is able to say this because men have power to decide for themselves if only they are exposed to the message. Now, I'm not going to get into this except to explain it in the most simple way I can. That God is sovereign. Absolutely. And He is sovereign not just in those that are saved and the particulars as to why they are saved and when they are saved and how they are saved and all the rest of it. He is sovereign in what He sends and what He withholds. And He sovereignly did not expose Tyre and Sidon to what Chorazin and Bethsaida and other cities had been exposed to. He withheld that from them. And so they they didn't repent. And they did perish. He's sovereign over it all. The whole point, really, of the text is not really to get down into what could have taken place in a city in a bygone era. That's not really the point. It's not, the focus is not really on Tyre and Sidon. The focus is to awaken these present cities. Chorazin, Bethsaida, these, these, this is the subject. This is the focus. This it is those that are on the heart of Christ. And they're the ones that are meant to wake up. They're the ones that are meant to hear and and consider this. So Christ gives this divine analysis. This this is what would have happened. There's no possible way any man could, could review and reflect on this except Jesus Christ because He is the Son of God. 
But this leads us then to consider that there are degrees of sin and judgment. Not only is there a divine analysis here, but there are degrees of sin and judgment. Verse 14, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. More tolerable. The suffering of those cities that were rejecting Jesus Christ would be far greater than these wicked cities. And this is the point I'm making. This is Jesus Christ getting under their skin. This is Him lamenting about the, the unbelief of, of, these, of these people. The Son of God has come their way. has performed countless miracles. There's every evidence that could ever be desired, and they are, they are greeting it with hard hearts and unbelief. There are degrees of sin, and there are degrees of judgment. Tyre and Sidon will be judged harshly. Chorazin and Bethsaida will be judged even more harshly. The idea that all sin is equal is unbiblical. All sin is not equal. Now, all sin is sin. That's not the same as saying all sin is equal. It is not. It cannot be biblically substantiated. It is plain that there are degrees of wickedness. So when when people like to say, well, you know, let him that is without sin cast the first stone in some kind of way to, to dodge responsibility for their own wickedness. They're, 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 they're presuming upon this understanding, I know you're a sinner, so don't you judge me as a sin. But in some of those contexts, you're dealing with, yes, the person who's making the judgment, the person who's observing the sin that's being committed is a sinner, but, but what, what, they're, what they're saying, what they're pointing at is far worse. It is worse. It is objectively worse, biblically worse, and it will come under more judgment. The rejection, in this case, of blessings is what will result in an increase of guilt. Tyre and Sidon did not have the Messiah in their presence ministering to them, or the twelve apostles, or the seventy. They, they did not have these great preachers coming their way. Now, there were prophets sent to them at times, and there, there's clear indication. We read there, Ezekiel was, was sent to the, the, the prince of Tyre and, and to to preach to him. But they were not exposed to the kind of preaching that these cities had been exposed to. And so this is, this is what makes it worse for them. If you're given more light and you abuse that light, your judgment will be worse. Think about that in the context of Greenville. Think about it in the context of all the churches and all the light that is here that you will go a long way before you find it in any other part of the world. And do you find that everyone expresses a deep evangelical repentance? a real awareness of their own sin, 
Go and do evangelism downtown. And see how many conversations you hold with people that in the initial remarks are endeavoring to communicate that they're Christian. And when you press them a little, what does that really mean to you? In what way does that alter your life? What, in what way does that change your decision-making? How, what does that look like? Just, just, just prod a little. And you will quickly discern. Many of these people do not know Christ. They are familiar with the language. But they have not responded a right to all the light that has come their way. Now, now we live this way. We understand if there's more light, there's more responsibility. Every parent here knows that there's a, there's a little more responsibility that is placed upon the eldest. And you've maybe said what I have said at times, you should know better, right? He said, you should know better. There's siblings squabbling. There are siblings that are interacting in ways that they ought not to be. There are discussions or arguments about she just said this and she said that or whatever. And you have to say sometimes, you look at the eldest and you say, you ought to know better. We've had this discussion before. They have more light, more experience. And this is what Christ has said to the seventy. They need to be aware of this. When he tells them in verse 12, point blank, I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Wherever you go, wherever you go, if they reject you, if they turn you away, if you have to signify their rejection of the gospel by wiping the dust of the city off your feet in this very public fashion, in this kind of object lesson fashion, then, then know this, it will, be, it will be worse for them than it will be for Sodom. 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 What infamy this city has. There are sins that we identify with this city. Terms that we describe activity by that relate to this city and have done for centuries. If I was to ask you what was Sodom's sin, I'm sure most here tonight would be able to tell me what it is. But you know, as I mused on this, as I mused on this, it's more than just what first comes to mind. Let me read to you that account in Genesis 19, just two verses that are found there. It's verses 4 and 5 when we're told, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house around, they're coming around Lot's house, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. And they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men which came into thee this night? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, the relevance of Jesus Christ raising Sodom to the fore at this point 
isn't just about the wickedness that first comes to mind. It is about how they were receiving the messengers of God. I, I put it to you that that, in part, is what is at play. That he is telling them, he is saying to the 70, you go into a city, you bring a message. If you are rejected, if you are rejected, it will be worse for that city than for those of Sodom. What happened in Sodom? Messengers were sent by God to warn the city, to tell them to escape for their lives, and they are greeted with this lack of hospitality, this wicked, this wicked desire and longing. But it's, it's the treatment of the messengers, that's the point. And the, the extremities of their treatment is, is, is horrifying. We, we get that. But it, it's not just the sin. It's to whom they want to do the sin. They want to, they want to violate and perform their sin against the messengers of God. And Christ says, so, so keep this in mind, the men of Sodom want to violate the messengers, God's messengers, in this immoral way. And Jesus says, when your message is rejected by these cities, they're doing worse in the sense of the light that has come their way and their rejection of that light, it makes them worse than the men of Sodom. Are you beginning to get the picture? This, this statement of being worse than Sodom would appear exaggerated, except it's spoken by someone who never exaggerated. They spoke truth with weight and gravity precision. And no man ever spake like this man. Later, when you read in your Old Testament and Sodom comes up again, if you were to look in your Bible and say, well, where's Sodom mentioned? You find the prophets make a heavy emphasis upon Sodom. There are many verses you'll find in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and they are comparing Israel and their sins to, to Sodom, making them out like Sodom. And, and I couldn't get away again from this, this sense. It's, it's the treatment. Yes, it's the wickedness. It's the sin. There's, there's that involved, no doubt. But it's the treatment of the messengers. America is slowly becoming more and more becoming like really a combination of Sodom and Capernaum and Bethsaida and so on. She is full of wickedness on one hand and she tries to argue for the legitimacy of it. And on the other hand, she is full of unbelief and she will truly become far worse than Sodom. Yea, far worse than Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum when she begins to really persecute God's messengers. 
taken the worst of both cities. The wickedness of Sodom, the unbelief of Capernaum and cities in that region, combine them together. This is where America is going. There are degrees of sin and judgment. That's the bottom line at this stage. That's the bottom line. If you, you need to take that away. There are degrees of sin. There are degrees of judgment. And Christ is going to meet it out perfectly on the day of judgment when we all stand before Him. And if we do not have the blood of Christ to wash away our sins, if we are not in Him, in union with Him, have found our peace with God, not through our own merit, but through Christ's merit, if we have not turned to the cross for forgiveness and reconciliation with God, we will perish. And because you have been exposed to greater light, it will be worse for you. That's what Jesus said. Secondly, that which is unseen. We've seen that which is unknown. These things that Christ has revealed on the city, the degrees of sin and judgment, these things He had to reveal to us so we would understand them. And there's that which is unseen. Verse 15. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted to heaven, shalt be thrust down to hell. Two very simple ideas here. And the first is this. The present favor. The present favor of a people. I want you to consider this in this statement. Thou, Capernaum, which art exalted to heaven. Now, there's differing ideas as to exactly what the Lord Jesus is referring to here. Is He referring to their material prosperity? That would apply. Capernaum was a prosperous city. And they were elevated, and in one sense you could say they were exalted to heaven. They had great status. Again, a bit like the prince of Tyrus who, who thinks himself exalted, trying to make himself out to be like God. That kind of language is, is being used by the Lord Jesus Christ concerning Capernaum. So there's a sense in which it's this material status. There may also be in this the sense of the spiritual favor that they've had as well. They're exalted to heaven in terms of what has been put before them. Christ, His miracles, His condescension to them particularly, to pass their way frequently, to preach to them regularly, to put before them miracles. That may also be included. But here's the point. Their idea of being exalted to heaven, that's... that's that is not something to trust in. Turn for a moment to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 14. And I want you to note here what Christ is probably alluding to. When, when, he, when he uses languages like this, and this is one of the things I always endeavor to do, and I, and I don't always succeed at it, but I'm always endeavoring to, to see, is there an illusion here? Is there something that the preacher, the Paul, the whatever other writer of the New Testament, or Lord Jesus, is he alluding to something? Isaiah 14, you find language here that is very similar. Verses, well, you can see here from verse 12. This is speaking in its context of Babylon, first and foremost. Now, there are perhaps... It's language that also reflects upon Satan himself and his own exaltation of self. That's for another time. But in the context directly, this is 
looking at the Babylonians. Verse 12, Heart thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Heart thou cut down to the ground, which does weaken the nations. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. So language like that is, is perhaps in the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's this sense of status. Capernaum has been exalted to heaven. At least that's what they think. That's their, their present evaluation. That's what you say about the city. They are favored. They, are, they have been greatly favored in whatever way, whether it's spiritually or materially. But be very careful. This is the point. Be very careful that your evaluation of what's going on in the present isn't what you think is determining what will happen in the future. Let me rephrase that just in case you missed it. When you analyze your life or someone else's, and you think because there's some degree of favor presently that that means that they're on a trajectory for favor, that's not necessarily the case. When it seems like you're lifted up to heaven, beware. Which brings us then to consider the future judgment of a people. Again, go back to the passage. Thou, Capernaum, which art exalted to heaven, shalt be thrust down to hell. You will be brought down to death, to the grave, to judgment. This is your future. I want you to pause tonight because evaluate your life. How are things going? Are they going well? Is everything going smoothly? Imagine that you're living under some present favor, materially, maybe even spiritually, you imagine. And you think, therefore, you are set, that nothing can ever upset this. This is the way it's always going to be. God's for me. God's with me. Be very careful. It's always my... I have an aversion to celebrations of certain sorts, any kind of celebration that may be in danger of reflecting that we've somehow arrived. And anniversaries can be like that, not, not wedding anniversaries so much, although it could happen there, but especially like church anniversaries or ministry anniversaries. And you get to 25 years, 30 years, 40 years, and you, you want to evaluate how far you've come, how something's gone. And I always get a little uneasy at the prospect of that. What's going to be said? And what spirit is it being said? Because right now, you know, you tend to have these anniversaries, especially when you think things are going really well. You want this kind of 
it's not bragging necessarily, but you kind of want to make it public. Here's where we were, here's where we are, everyone should know, let's praise God. At least that's what we say we want to do. But it can very quickly, can very quickly shift into this kind of evaluation that we're exalted to heaven. We have this favor of the Lord. And then all of a sudden, it crumbles. What may be true of a nation, what may be true of a city, may also be true of an individual. So many of you have been exalted to heaven. You have. Materially, you have. The vast majority of you have been exalted to heaven. You have been feared. You were born in America. And the providence of God brought you to this land of prosperity. You have been exalted to heaven. It's still the land that the vast majority of people in the world want to go to. When they're thinking economically, when they're thinking this is where success is, this is still largely the place where people maybe doesn't have the same drive or mentality that people coming into the land once had, but it's still largely like that, isn't it? Here you are, so favored. Yes, even, even generally the most lowly of us are still remarkably favored. Exalted to heaven. And spiritually too. I mean, the gospel is everywhere. Some of you have never known the day when you haven't been aware of the, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You, you've constantly been bombarded and exposed to and saturated with it. You've been exalted to heaven. And here's the thing. What have you done with it? What have you done with it? Does your heart reverberate with gratitude? Are you thankful to God every day? Are you, are you, do you sense how merciful He has been to you? Christian, you're saved. Whatever else is going on in your life, you are saved. You're not in some back place in, in some other region of the world where there's hardly a missionary that exists where someone would barely know where to even find a Bible if they even knew what a Bible was. That's not where you are. You have been exalted to heaven. You have been so favored. We have all been so favored. And we could stop right now. We could stop right now and have a season of prayer and just weep over the favor of Almighty God to every last one of us. And yet there may be some here tonight and you're not saved. And it is as we will see in just a moment, this, this is the worst thing. Christ is exposing that this is the most awful response. You've had all this favor. It has been poured upon you, lavished upon you. And your heart is full of discontentment and, and you, you, you're just self-centered and life is about you and Christ is some compartmentalized person. You kind of put him in your pocket. You take him out whenever you decide it's the right time, when it's fitting to present yourself as a Christian, but there's no love for Christ at all, no fellowship with Jesus Christ, no appreciation of the cross, no real heart for the kingdom of God. 
Therefore, this is, this is what is unseen. This is what is unseen. You imagine, you imagine you're exalted to heaven. You think you're going to stay there, but you don't see the future day. You don't see it. Capernaum didn't see it. You're exalted to heaven. You'll be thrust down to hell. They couldn't see it. Thirdly then, finally, that which is unwanted, that which is unwanted. Verse 16, he that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me, and he that despiseth me despiseth him that sent me. So what makes all this so wicked? Why, why is it that Christ is, is, is speaking in this language? I mean, this isn't the Jesus that people generally put before you, is it? Is it? <laughs> generally it's not. Generally, our exposure to the Son of God is language of how loving, how sacrificial, how merciful, and He is all those things. He is. He is all those things. In fact, He's far more loving, far more sacrificial, far more glorious, far more wonderful than anything you've ever been told. He's far greater than anything you've ever been told in terms of the positive. But He is also frightening because He is God. And he ought to be revered. We ought to humble ourselves before him. And when he speaks in language like this, we are of the greatest fools on the earth if we ignore it, if we kind of skip over it and imagine, well, I don't like that part of the Bible. Or Jesus was speaking very much within his own context that has no application today to me. Wrong. Wrong. It has a lot of application. I don't want you to miss it. The great wickedness here that causes the lament of Christ is found in what they reject. And that is summarized for us in verse 16. And he, again, he seems to turn back here. This is kind of, if you like, a kind of skyward lament that is made in verses 13 through 15. Then he turns to the seventy and clear direction to them, he that heareth you heareth me, and so on and so forth. And there are three things to note here. There's the Word of God, the person of Christ, and the love of the Father. The Word of God, he that heareth you heareth me. He that heareth you, and then it goes on to say, he that despiseth you. Now, when he says about hearing you and despising you, he's not just referring to they didn't like your personality. There was a personality conflict when you went into the city. You spoke to the wrong person. You didn't get on. It didn't work out. That, that's not what he's dealing with. When they're hearing them and then despising them, it's not them. It is what they're preaching. And what are they preaching? preaching the Word of God. And so there they are, preaching the Word of God. They go to these cities to declare the kingdom, to prepare them for the arrival of Jesus Christ. And they reject the Word of God. They reject what the people reject. The city rejects what they're preaching. So that's what happens when a preacher gets up and he just opens up the Word and he 
teaches from it. He is, endeavors to be faithful. And we walk through these verses. We, we don't just pick and choose. We want to know all of the Word of God. We want to expose our hearts to all of His truth. And we come to passages like this, and you, you think again, let's just back up again, where He tells them in verses 10 and 11 what they're to do if they're rejected. This is, again, is a very visible statement to, to the people that they're being considered as heathen, as unbelievers. They go to their synagogues. They go to their synagogues and they sing their psalms and they head to Jerusalem on special feast days. They're engaging in all the religious activity. They, 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 they were circumcised. They have all of that. I mean, they have all of that. But Christ says, treat them like unbelievers if they reject you. It doesn't seem very loving. And yet it's the most loving thing He could do. The most unloving thing He could do is tell them to go into those cities Declare the message. If it's rejected, say to them, fine, it's okay. All is well. Don't worry. You'll get a second chance. Don't worry. There is no judgment after death. Don't worry. There's nothing to be concerned about. That's the most unloving thing. So Christ tells them again, when they hear you, What they're hearing is the Word of God, and if they despise you, what they're despising is the Word of God, because that's what I've sent you to preach, the Word. Also, the person of Christ, and you see it go on stages then, heareth me, despiseth me, is what he says in verse 16. So, as they go and bring the Word of God, there is a knock-on effect, as it were, because, well, in this sense, they're, they're one and the same. You can't have Christ without His Word. You can't have the Word without Christ. If you're preaching the Word, you're putting Christ before people. And I, I could go to other passages in the Scriptures to, to show that when it refers to the Word or the preaching of the Gospel, Christ is there. When Christ is there, He's not actually there in person. It's some preacher that is there bringing the Word. And so Jesus is sending them, and physically He's not there, but as they preach the Word, if they don't hear it and if they despise it, they're despising me. Again, it's, it's deflecting, it's saying it's not about you. You bring the Word, and their hatred is, is towards me. And then the Father also. He that despiseth me, despiseth him that sent me. And here's the thing, they, here, here's where they would, they would stop, you see. Because they're going to cities that would say, we believe in the God of Israel. We obey the God of Israel. We read His Word. We practice everything He tells us to practice. He is our God. And Jesus is telling the 70, they reject the Word, they reject me, they reject God. There's no escaping that. This, of course, He would make plain in John chapter 8. It's a reminder that those who reject the true Christ don't have any understanding of the true God. Islam's understanding of Jesus Christ is not a true understanding of Jesus Christ. And they don't know God. When it's said because it's an Abrahamic religion, 
There are certain passages that they accept as well. Then their God is the same as our God. It's not true. It is not true. Jesus Christ says it's not true. And the same for the Jews. The idea that people in Israel who reject Jesus as the Messiah are worshipping the same God as you is not true. And you find this plainly expressed by Christ. And it's right here. It's implied here. They despise you, they despise me, they despise me, they despise him who sent me. They don't worship him. Not at all. Oh, this is very exclusive. It is. This says there's no room for pluralism here. Jesus Christ will not have it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Peter declared plainly in Acts 4.12, Neither is there salvation in any other. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. In this house, we're about one name, one God, one person, Jesus Christ, who suffered on the cross. That's the only way of reconciliation to God. That's the only way to deal with your sin. That's the only way of peace. That's the only religion that counts. This is what we take to the nations, beloved. That's why we must be about the Great Commission, both locally and abroad. We must, we must be about our calling and telling the world about Jesus Christ. John Calvin noted, Those who disdain to listen to ministers, however mean and contemptible they may be, offer an insult not to men only, but to Christ himself unto God the Father. And just as an aside, the Roman Catholic Church that would try to say that language like this is a transfer of honor because they, they must hear you. By hearing you, they're hearing Christ. By hearing Christ, they're hearing you're receiving the Father, or so on and so forth. Then there's a transfer of honor. So you're to treat the Pope of Rome as if he is God himself. That is not the point. It's not about us. It's about Him. So, I invite you to Christ tonight by the authority of Jesus Christ. I invite you, my friend, to seek the Lord while He may be found. I invite you to repent and believe the gospel. I exhort you by God's Word to turn from your sin, to give up your sin, to flee to Christ for the forgiveness of sin. And you have, you, you, in this moment, you, you listen and you hear and you respond and it either is in full gratitude for full free salvation in Christ or you're worse than Sodom. You're lost. You're so utterly lost. Let's bow together in prayer. There are times when the Lord is in the business of grabbing us by the lapels and shaking us. Christ was doing that that day as He sent the seventy into the cities. As He approached and 
neared the end of his ministry more and more. As he's making his final journey through all these towns and villages, what unbelief he had faced and what judgment was awaiting those cities if they would not, on this final visit through, turn from their sins. You never know when it's going to be your final hearing of the gospel. You're not in control of the hour of your death. And you're called, therefore, to seek the Lord while He may be found. Today, if you hear His voice, harden not your heart. Today, respond. Today, believe. Today, repent. Today, turn. If you need any help, if you have any concern about your soul, and you want to talk to me, I'll be available after the service. Lord, we pray, help us to hear these words of Jesus Christ, to hear them as they were intended, to cut through all the refuge of lies that we hide under by nature. His language exposes us to consider things that penetrate to the quick. We pray that men and women and boys and girls will hear, will hear the appeal of the loving Lord Jesus. Oh, how loving He is to tell us the truth always, to speak that truth always in love, to be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, looking upon the multitudes, having compassion on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. God, we would pray that tonight, should there be one here, still in unbelief, without Jesus Christ, teetering on the age of eternity without the blood applied to their hearts, have mercy. And open their blinded eyes. Give them no rest. Give them no peace. Until they make their peace with Thee, our God. Be with us all in our fellowship. Sanctify our conversations. Be with those who go downstairs and everyone as they eventually make their way home. Keep Thy hand upon us through this week. Help us to bring glory to Jesus Christ. Part us in Thy fear and with Thy favor. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all Thy people now and evermore.